Hello and welcome to Dragon Bites, the paediatric podcast aimed at paediatric trainees or anyone interested in child health. This week we have another clinical quiz for you. Sophie Constantinou, the clinical exam teaching lead for Wales, has put together a quiz based around the abdominal examination. If you haven't tried one of these before, they're great fun, even if you're not doing your clinical exams, it's a really good refresher on things that you'd otherwise have forgotten about. The way it works is like this. Sophie will give you 20 questions grouped into sections of five. This will then be followed by a one minute musical interlude to give you a chance to think about the answers and questions you haven't quite figured out yet. Then following that, Sophie will give you the answers to all the questions. Anyway, this is great fun. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Take it away, Sophie. Hi, I'm Sophie, and this is my revision podcast for the MRCPCH clinical exam. Pub quiz number three, the abdominal station. So for those of you who haven't joined us for a pub quiz, there will be four rounds with five questions each, and each week we start, as in real life, with the inspection round. Round one. Question one. On inspection, you find an obese child with some dysmorphic facial features. For a point, can you name two possible genetic causes of obesity and dysmorphism? Question 2. On general inspection, you find a child who is small for age with a doll-like face. There are tendons and thomas on their extensor surfaces. What is the most likely underlying diagnosis? Question three. On inspection, you find a thin child with a distended abdomen and a cap at Medusae. What is the underlying disease process? Question four. On inspection, you see a small, thin child with a healed midline laparotomy scar. In addition, you find a small two to three centimetre scar on the right side of the abdomen. What is the most likely underlying diagnosis? For a bonus point, can you name an operation they might have had? Question five. On inspection, you see a child with jaundice, abdominal distension, abnormal movements, and who has an intellectual disability. What is their underlying diagnosis? For a bonus point, what might you see on close inspection of their eyes? Round two. Round two this week is a special round on organomegaly and it's going to run like a practice viva. So for the next three questions, try to give your answers using a systems or category approach. For example, 
If I asked about causes of clubbing, try to start with cardiac causes and give examples, then GI causes and give examples, etc. Okay, so question six. Name some causes of hepatomegaly. Question seven. Name some causes of splenomegaly. Question eight. Tell me some causes of hepatosplenomegaly. Question nine. On examination, you find a child with coarse facial features and macroglossia. There is a large reducible umbilical hernia and hepatosplenomegaly. Name a possible underlying diagnosis. Question 10. On examination, you find an eight-year-old girl of African heritage. She has slightly pale palms and a palpable mass in the left upper quadrant. What is the most likely diagnosis? Round three this week is all about scars. So for each question, I want you to give one or two operations that may have resulted in the incision described. Question 11. Name two operations which can be carried out through Cocker's incision. Question 12. Name two causes of a left transverse upper abdominal incision. Question 13. Name three causes of a right transverse upper abdominal incision. Question 14. Name three causes of a periambilical scar. And as a hint, the scar might look messy or like an unusual looking umbilicus. Question 15. Name a single cause of a small upper midline transverse scar. Round four. Round four this week is the investigations round. Try to give your answers using a system to practice the format you would give your answers in the exam. Imagine that you've already taken history and performed a thorough examination. Question 16. How would you investigate a patient with obesity? Question 17. 
How would you investigate a patient with splenomegaly? Question 18. How would you investigate a child with hepatomegaly? Question 19. How would you investigate an infant with prolonged conjugated jaundice who is clinically stable? Question 20 is our bonus question this week. So, for a bonus point, how many eponymous terms or syndromes did Rudolf Virchow have named after him? answers. Okay, so we'll go through the answers now and we're going to start with round one which was the inspection round. So the first question, question one, was about an obese child with some dysmorphic facial features and I asked for two possible genetic causes of obesity and dysmorphism. So the ideas that I had were any two of the following, so Down syndrome, Prader-Willi syndrome, or Kleinfelter syndrome, but I'm sure that you can think of many more. Question two. So question two was about a small child who had a doll-like face with some tendonxanthomas on the extensor surfaces. And the underlying diagnosis that I was trying to um, illustrate was of von Gehrig's disease or glycogen storage disorder type one. So just as a refresher, glycogen storage disorder type 1 is an autosomal recessive disorder and it's caused by reduced glucose 6-phosphate activity. It tends to present quite early in life with hypoglycemia or asymptomatic hepatomegaly. Question 3. So question 3 was about a small thin child who had a distended abdomen and a caput medusae I asked for what could be the underlying disease process and what I was trying to get at was the patient probably has got portal hypertension. So we don't see very much of this in paediatrics but the cardinal feature of portal hypertension is of splenomegaly and you must remember that it doesn't necessarily mean that the liver is failing. In terms of causes of portal hypertension it tends to be best if you can try and give one or two reasons 
within the prehepatic or obstructive causes, hepatic causes, as well as post-hepatic causes. If you want a more thorough list, you can check out the companion worksheet for a list of the most common causes of portal hypertension. Question four. So question four was of a child who had a big midline laparotomy scar, but who also had a little scar on the right side of the abdomen. What I was trying to get at was that the patient might have cystic fibrosis because they're thin, and the disease process that they might have had before was meconium ileus, and the little scar on the right may have been a previous ileostomy, which has subsequently been reversed, and obviously they had the initial major bowel surgery to, for the resection and stoma formation associated with their meconium ileus. Question five. So question five, there were the signs of jaundice, abdominal distension, abnormal movements, and intellectual disability. I asked for the underlying diagnosis, and then I gave you a hint that you might want to have a look at their eyes. So the diagnosis that I was looking for was of Wilson's disease, and the eye sign is a Kaiser Fleischer ring. And just as a refresher, a Kaiser Fleischer ring is deposition of copper at the corneoscleral junction. Round two. So round two was a special round on organomegaly, and I wanted you to try to give causes of the various findings that you might find, so hepatomegaly, etc., but using a systems-based approach. So if you wanted to go back and practice this now, you could rewind the podcast and then pause it if you needed some more time to think of the causes. But this is the sort of question that you might get asked in the exam itself. So question six, I asked for some causes of hepatomegaly. And the way that I would try to give my answer in the exam was to break them down into the following categories. So I would break hepatomegaly down into storage disorders, obstructive causes, and then other rare causes. Some examples of storage disorders would be of Gaucher's or Neumann's Pick's disease, or of glycogen storage disorders, or as a consequence of cystic fibrosis or having long-term PM. Obstructive causes, I would probably just give one example of um, CCF. And then the rarer causes, so as we mentioned in the previous question, Wilson's disease, other rare problems like alpha-1 antitrypsin, or really rare, congenital hepatic fibrosis. As an aside, unlikely that you're going to get these patients coming into the exam, but for real life, you also mustn't forget about neoplastic and infective causes. So question seven, I basically asked exactly the same thing, but I'm, instead of hepatomegaly, I wanted to know some causes of splenomegaly. So my differential diagnosis for splenomegaly for a patient in the exam would be broken down into the following categories. So they would be hemolytic disorders, infiltrative disorders, anything to do with disordered blood flow through the spleen, and autoimmune causes. So some of the hemolytic disorders that you might have come up with um, would have been of hereditary spherocytosis, sickle cell anemia, or thalassemia because the spleen is a site of extramedullary hematopoiesis. So they're the main ones really and hereditary spherocytosis is a common exam case because these patients are generally really well and can be brought into the exam. So that was the first category. The second one would be infiltrative 
disease, so that would be Gaucher's disease. Disordered flow, so anything like portal hypertension or um, liver cirrhosis or even cardiac failure, you may end up with splenomegaly because of those things as well. And then autoimmune causes, very rare but important to mention, JIA or SLE. And remember again, like in the previous um, question, unlikely in the exam but important in real life to not forget the neoplastic and infective causes of splenomegaly, which probably would be higher up in our differential diagnosis than the things that we might see in cases for the exam. Question eight. So question eight was, again, probably you're getting a bit bored of this now, but they are the causes of hepatosplenomegaly, and they are slightly different in each case, aren't they? So hepatosplenomegaly, the differential diagnosis probably would be um, broken down into the following categories. So infiltrative causes like cystic fibrosis or mucopolysaccharidosis, such as Hunter's or Hurler's syndrome. They would be the main ones. The next category would be hematological, like thalassemia. And then you could have other rare causes like the congenital hepatic fibrosis again. The thing with those lists of differentials is you really do need to remember them because they need to be fresh on the tip of your tongue. If you find a patient with those signs in the exam, you need to really be able to reel off the, this differential diagnosis. Okay, so then we moved away from those lists of differential diagnosis and we started to think about a whole patient again. So question nine was about a child with coarse facial features and who also had macroglossia. And on when you looked at the abdomen, you found a reducible umbilical hernia and on palpation, you had hepatosplenomegaly. So the, this patient with the coarse facial features in particular, this could be um, a patient who suffers from mucopolysaccharidosis and they could be, for example, Hunter's or Hurler's syndrome. So then question 10, was about um, an eight-year-old girl who is of African heritage. When you examined her hand, she had slightly pale palms and you felt a mass in the left upper quadrant. If you asked her to breathe in and out, you would have found that it moved down in inspiration, so it's probably splenomegaly. And the most likely diagnosis for this little girl is sickle cell anemia. It's really important to revise um, the signs of sickle cell anemia and to know how you would investigate and manage these patients because again very stable patients um, lovely patients to be brought in for the exam so round three um, was a scars round so for each question i wanted to, you to give me a couple of operations that might have been resulted in the scar that I, I described so question 11 i asked what operations could be carried out through a cocker's incision so or a rooftop incision in paediatrics, these would be biliary surgery, such as a cholecystectomy, or hepatic surgery. And if there was an upper midline extension, that would obviously be hepatic surgery, including a liver transplant. Question 12, I asked for two causes of a left transverse upper abdominal incision. So in paediatrics, these uh, scars are often used to fix a congenital diaphragmatic hernia on the left. Um, and also sometimes they can be used to operate on the spleen as well. Question 13 was basically the mirror of the previous scar and I wanted three causes of a right transverse upper abdominal incision. So these are of a congenital diaphragmatic hernia repair but on the right this time. Also 
you can operate on meconium ileus through an incision similar to this, although they might also have a laparotomy scar. Um, and also you can operate on duodenal atresia through this type of incision as well. So question 14. So these patients might also come to the exam. They are patients who have got a funny looking umbilical or periumbilical scar. Um, so if it's a funny looking scar, it's a bit messy and it doesn't look like a nice neat surgical incision, the chances are a surgeon didn't create it, nature created it and a surgeon tried to fix it. So it's the, the most likely things that you'll find are um, previous gastroscetus repair or previous omphalocele or exomphalous repair. If the scar is neater um, or, they, or maybe there's a very, very small scar just around the umbilicus with a couple of other small incisions, it may have been that um, the patient had an umbilical hernia repair. Question 15. Um, question 15 was about naming the cause of a small upper midline transverse scar. And the answer I was trying to get was of a Nissen's fundoplication scar. Sometimes, but the operation for pyloric stenosis, if it was done open, can result in a scar that looks a little bit similar, but usually it wouldn't be exactly in this place. If you want to see a nice diagram of all the different scars, including a version that you can label up yourself and practice, we have included one of those on the worksheet, so please have a look at that. Okay, so the last round. So round four was the investigations round. And again, I think with this podcast, I'm trying to get you to use some systems to practice giving your answers when asked about specific things in the exam. I ask you to imagine you've already taken a full history and formed an examination. Um, and then just to try and use a format for investigating the following signs or symptoms. Just to say, this list is not exhaustive. It's just really a suggestion of how you might answer the question if asked in the exam and to give you a bit of practice of trying to give answers on the spot. So question 16 was, I asked you, how would you investigate a patient with obesity? So it's best to use the structure bedside tests, blood tests, imaging and special tests. So bedside tests could be doing a blood pressure, a blood sugar or a urine dip. And I'm sure you can think of many more. Blood tests such as thyroid function, fasting glucose, lipids, insulin levels potentially, or HbA1c. Imaging would be potentially, you might not do anything, but potentially of an abdominal ultrasound scan of the liver to look for fatty infiltration. And then special tests, you might consider growth hormone or IGF-1 levels as well. So question 17 was, how would you investigate a patient with splenomegaly? And again, bedside tests would be your observations, but particularly for splenomegaly, you would want to know their heart rate, their oxygen saturations, their blood pressure, and you probably want a urine dipstick as well. Blood tests, you would do an FBC, but in addition, you would definitely want a reticulocyte count and a blood film to look for evidence of things like hemolysis as well as doing a set of LFTs. Imaging, you would want an abdominal ultrasound scan, but you would definitely want to check um, portal vein Dopplers as well to see whether or not there's evidence of portal hypertension leading to splenomegaly. And then special tests, so you could do some additional LFTs like a gamma GT or an AST, for example. You could do an ANA, 
um, a hepatitis screen and possibly a bone marrow aspirate if you have found abnormalities in the blood film. You want to make sure that you're excluding anemia and also rarer infections as well. So you could even consider something like an HIV test. So question 18 was, again, the same thing. How would you investigate a child with hepatomegaly? So again, bedside tests, very similar to the ones before. So heart rate, blood pressure, a urine dipstick, and a blood glucose potentially for inborn errors of metabolism, so genetic problems, sorry. Blood tests, you would pretty much want the same as, as before. So an FBC with a reticular site count and a blood film. LFTs, as at the first set of bloods that I would do, would include a conjugated and unconjugated bilirubin, as well as a gamma GT AST. And I would do a coagulation studies as well on a child with hepatomegaly um, straight away. Imaging, again, an abdominal ultrasound scans with portal vein dopplers. And if you're worried, your patient might have an underlying diagnosis of a syndrome. You're finding signs of heart failure, for example, you, you would want an echocardiogram as well. Special tests. So, I mean, the list is really exhaustive, but as a sort of additional first line things you would do, you would definitely do a hepatitis screen. You'd consider things like alpha-1 antitrypsin. You may want to do an INR and a PT if your coagulation studies where you are doesn't have those on. You might want to ask for them additionally. Um, and you might want to consider if you've done an echo, doing an ECG and things like that. So, um, again, not an exhaustive list but just some ideas to get you thinking about how you might answer that question in the exam. Question 19 was um, a little bit different. So this question was about the investigations for an infant with prolonged conjugated jaundice. Yes, that is that big list of stuff that you always see in a children's assessment unit when you're on shift and you have to investigate for prolonged jaundice. Um, so... You don't want to go into masses of detail. You won't even have enough time to list off all the things that you would do. But I think it's just to try and categorise what's most important and why and try and justify why you'd be doing each test. So bedside tests for a baby, you'd want a full set of observations, wouldn't you? Including a blood pressure. You'd want a urine dip um, to check for hemolysis again. And you'd want to send for an MCNS just in case there's a sepsis causing jaundice. And you'd want a blood glucose as well in case it's something rare blood tests again fbc with reticular site count and a film you'd want a blood group and a dct or a direct humes test you'd want to do coagulation studies lfts including an ast and gamma gt and you may want to consider at this point doing cholesterol or triglyceride level as well investigations again abdo ultrasound scan but you may then go on to discuss this patient with a tertiary liver centre and they might suggest something like a HIDA scan. So then special tests. There are tons of special tests for prolonged jaundice, aren't they? But I think the ones that you want to remember are usually the following. So you want to check for galactose 1-phosphate uridyl transferase, so that's GAL1-PUT levels, or alpha-1 antitrypsin levels. You may want to consider more like a metabolic screen, so doing plasma and urine amino acids or urine organic acids. You could consider thyroid function tests, cortisol. You might want to send a urine for CMV. I mean, there are loads of them that you can do. I think it's just come up with something sensible. Um, and I'm sure you'll impress the examiner.
So really, that again, not supposed to be an exhaustive list, but hopefully giving you some ideas how you would um, practice giving your answers in the exam. So then question 20 was our bonus question. So for a bonus point, I asked how many eponymous terms or syndromes did Rudolf Verkov have named after him? And remarkably, this is 16. Um, you can go on Wikipedia and have a good look at all of them, but they include Verkov's node, Verkov's angle, Verkov's seckel syndrome, as well as Verkov's triad, um, and a whole load of other ones as well. So if you're really bored of revising and you want five minutes um, marvelling at how amazing this guy was, um, go and have a look on Wikipedia. So that's it for today. Um, my thanks to Dragon Bites for hosting this podcast. Make sure that you check out the London School of Pediatrics MRCPCH videos and download the Change for Life app. Please don't forget to check out our other podcasts and remember you can download the companion worksheet from the website for more info on the abdominal examination. And if you haven't done so already, have a listen to the abdo exam revision episode. Thank you all for listening and see you next time for more MRCPCH revision. Another brilliant quiz there for us from Sophie. I always find abdominal stuff so much harder to remember than the cardiology and respiratory stuff. So it's really useful to go over that again and refresh my memory about it all. As Sophie mentioned, you can head to our website www.dragonbitespodcast.com to listen to previous quizzes that she's released, but also to her podcasts about specific examinations and how to carry them out. She's also produced a couple of worksheets for you to go through on there as well. Join us next week where we'll be doing the first in a series of podcasts with Dr Gavin Forbes, a consultant microbiologist based here in the University Hospital of Wales. Next week he's going to be joined by Tom Cromarty, one of our new hosts on Dragon Bites, and they'll be discussing the culture of microbiology. Anyway, thank you for listening to Dragon Bites.